Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. Today on our feature, Norm Holy talks with Robert Colangelo about vertical farming. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. The oldest known black rhino, a female named Fausta, died in late September of natural causes in a conservation area in the Ngorongoro Crater in Tanzania. Reuters reported records show that Fausta lived longer than any known rhino in the world and survived in the Ngorongoro, free-ranging for more than 54 years. Fausta was first discovered in the crater by a scientist in 1965, when Fausta was between three and four years old. She wandered freely in the crater for most of her life and never had calves, something that might have contributed to her longevity, BBC News has reported. Rhinos typically live about 40 years in the wild and up to 50 years in captivity. Fausta, however, survived in the wild until she was 54, when she was brought to a sanctuary because she suffered from poor vision and had suffered several attacks by hyenas. She was removed from the wild in 2016. Fausta's life has covered a tumultuous time for the black rhinos. Their population plummeted by 1980, by 98 percent between 1960 and 1995 to less than 2,500, due mostly to trophy hunters and settlers in Africa. Their numbers have since doubled to around 5,000, but they are still considered a critically endangered species, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List. They are now primarily threatened by poaching and habitat loss. Fausta's death comes the month after Sana, the oldest white rhino in captivity, died in France at the age of 55, reported by CNN. Because of the drought conditions in Australia, some camels are being shot in order to conserve water for livestock and native animals. Aboriginal officials in Australia approved the rounding up and killing of up to 10,000 camels because of drought conditions, claiming that the thirsty camels are drinking up too much of a dwindling water supply, as CBS News reported. The officials in the sparsely populated part of South Australia said in a statement that the wild animals are endangering locals in pastoral lands as they struggle to find water during Australia's prolonged drought and blistering heat. Some wild horses will also be killed, according to the BBC. Camels are not native to Australia. They were brought by British settlers from India, Afghanistan, and the Middle East in the 19th century. While an exact number of camels roaming through the central, desolate parts of Australia is unknown, it is estimated that there may be slightly over a million. Their numbers are rapidly growing. The camels not only drink water that is needed by people, plants, and livestock, but damage fences, farm equipment, and settlements. The number of camels being killed represents about 1% of the current population. 
JetBlue, a discount airline, plans to be the nation's first airline to be carbon neutral when it begins in July to purchase carbon offsets for all of its domestic flights, according to CBS News. The company said that by offsetting all of their domestic flying, they are preparing their business for the lower carbon economy that aviation and all sectors must plan for. JetBlue also announced that starting in July, all of its flights departing from San Francisco International Airport will run on sustainable fuel. The sustainable fuel it will purchase is made by Neste, called My Renewable Jet Fuel. The fuel is made 100% from waste and residue raw materials. It's fully compatible with existing jet engine technology. The JetBlue Press release says that throughout its life cycle, the sustainable fuel has a carbon footprint that is up to less than 80% smaller than that of fossil jet fuel. Nest makes this jet fuel from such things as used cooking oil and animal waste fat. JetBlue will invest in carbon offsets by donating money to environmental projects including forest conservation, capturing and reusing methane gas emitted from landfills, and developing solar and wind farms in areas that would otherwise rely on fossil fuels for energy. While the company did not disclose the cost, it did say buying carbon offsets would not force the airline to raise its prices. As reported by the New York Times, President Trump announced rollbacks of National Environmental Policy Act regulations last week. President Richard Nixon signed one of the most effective laws ever written to protect the environment and strengthen democracy by ensuring that citizens would have a say over projects like highways and pipelines that directly affect their well-being. Now President Trump is trying to reverse it. Often called the Magna Carta of Environmental Law, the 1970 National Environmental Policy Act requires that major energy and infrastructure projects receiving federal funding or requiring federal approval must undergo environmental reviews. Citizens have a right to weigh in on these proposals and hearings and through a public comment process. Mr. Trump's proposed changes would reduce the number of projects subject to such reviews by setting new criteria for what qualifies as a major federal action requiring review. Mr. Trump's new rules would allow environmental reviews to be conducted by contractors with a financial interest in the project. That could give corporations more influence over how those reviews are written. Mr. Trump's plan would also restrain the fight against climate change by removing a requirement to assess a project's cumulative impacts, like the emission of greenhouse gas. That's an advantage to the fossil fuel industry, which doesn't want long-term climate impacts to be considered in decisions over whether to allow more coal to be mined. Although the climate crisis demands ceasing to burn coal and the coal industry is in decline, the Trump administration is trying to expand coal mining on public lands and loosen environmental regulations under the pretext of getting the U.S. to stop importing minerals it deems critical to national security. Some of those minerals are extracted from coal and its byproducts. So-called rare earth minerals are often plentiful in the waste material from mining and burning coal. The technology for extracting those minerals from mining waste isn't yet financially viable and can pollute the environment and thus the push for it seems to be an excuse for further coal mining and the production of coal ash. Rare earth elements are actually abundant and consist of 17 minerals used in everything from cell phone screens to high power magnets to oil refining. Currently, the National Coal Council and Industry Trade Group touts coal's potential as a source of rare earth minerals used in wind and solar technology. 
According to new research, among southern resident orcas, also known as killer whales, which live in northern Washington state and southern British Columbia, the grandmothers are critical to the well-being of their grandchildren. Although most animals die after reproducing, a few species, including humans and some whales, experience menopause and continue living long past reproductive age. Orcas are one of those species, and female orcas past breeding age are key to the survival of their grandcalves. Orca grandmothers improve their grandcalves' chances of survival. Orca calves, whose maternal grandmothers died within the last two years, had a mortality rate 4.5 times higher than calves with live grandmothers. The effect was especially noticeable when salmon populations, which orcas feed on, were low. Some elderly orca females lead calves in their groups to salmon gathering places in the ocean. Since salmon populations are generally declining, orca grandmothers' role in the survival of the mammals is critical. Southern resident orcas' populations are declining, and they're endangered and at risk of extinction. The U.S. oil, gas, and petrochemical industry has a five-year business plan that's disastrous for the climate and public health. The industry plans to release as much new greenhouse gas as 50 new coal-fired power plants. According to government documents, the industry is planning to construct or expand 157 projects by the end of 2025. Those projects include refineries, oil and gas drilling facilities, and plastics factories. Research by the Environmental Integrity Project demonstrates that the projects could release 227 million tons more greenhouse gas. That translate to producing 30% more greenhouse gas by 2025 than in 2018. The industry's emissions will be as bad for public health as for the environment. Their permits allow the companies to emit hundreds of thousands of tons of toxins, contributing to air and water pollution and causing asthma, cancer, and heart attacks. Communities where the facilities are built will be the hardest hit. The state of Minnesota is weighing the final water crossing permits needed to build Line 3, an Enbridge oil pipeline planned to send a million barrels per day of tar sands from Alberta, Canada to the western edge of Lake Superior across the lands and waters of indigenous people in northern Minnesota. The pipeline would cross 211 water bodies and some of the world's richest wild rice beds. Line 3 represents a 10% increase in tar sands production. According to the state of Minnesota, the pipeline would cost society $287 billion in climate change over 30 years. The pipeline would cross through Mississippi River headwaters and cross the river twice. If the pipeline ruptures, those waters could carry oil across the state, polluting wetlands, wild rice beds, forests, and farmland. Treaties with the U.S. government protect this territory, where the Ojibwe people retain the right to hunt, fish, and harvest wild rice. The Minnesota segment of Line 3 is the final holdout of the pipeline resistance movement, which indigenous communities, landowners, water protectors, environmentalists, and thousands of other Minnesotans have participated in for years. The U.S. Forest Service is moving forward with a plan to log over 4,000 acres of the Hoosier National Forest. They also plan to burn over 30,000 acres, build 16 miles of logging roads, and apply herbicides on 2,000 acres. The Hoosier National Forest drains into Monroe Reservoir. This proposed Houston South Vegetation Management and Restoration Project will increase sediment runoff into the South Fork of Salt Creek, which is already polluting Monroe Reservoir, That is the sole drinking water supply for 120,000 people in Monroe and surrounding counties. 
It will cause repeated closures of some popular hiking and horseback riding trails. The project could harm at least seven species of federally or state-listed bats and other birds, mammals, amphibians, and reptiles that are state-endangered or listed as species of special concern in Indiana. The U.S. Forest Service says that best management practices will prevent water pollution, but monitoring of other logging sites shows that is not true. In a Kentucky study, suspended sediments were 14 times higher during the first 17 months after cutting in a watershed. According to the Friends of Lake Monroe, the Forest Service did not consider the effect on Lake Monroe in the Houston South Project's environmental assessment. The project site is about 25 miles east of Lake Monroe and located on the South Fork watershed, which does not directly drain into the lake. In its present unlogged condition, the Houston South project area supports seven species of bats that are federally endangered or threatened under consideration for this listing or state endangered or species of special concern. Burns are performed after the roosting season, so they have little impact on bats. Burns are performed to bring about new tree growth, especially of oaks and hickory which are crucial to wildlife and highly valued for their lumber. And now for our feature, we will hear Norm Holy talk with Robert Colangelo about vertical farming. Green Sense Farms is one of the first indoor vertical farms. We grow uh, produce and seedlings indoors in stacking hydroponic tubs 24 feet tall. Our real advantage is that we can grow a high density of produce year-round in a controlled environment. We begin by building a room within a room. So think of walking into a large walk-in cooler. Inside that room, we have pallet racking in which we put four by eight foot uh, tubs. And in the tubs, we have trays that grow our plants. We have a, a sophisticated custom design computer controlled system that delivers the precise inputs into the, the farm. So our CO2, our LED lights, our nutrient, our water, our temperature, our humidity are all precisely controlled to provide optimum growing conditions for the plants so that they can grow year-round consistently at the highest quality. So you're not worried about the cold that we're going to have this week? No, this week they're predicting record colds in the Chicago area with Temperatures somewhere between minus 10 to minus 27 and wind chills in the 30 to 50 below. But we're growing independent and regardless of outside weather. Are you enhancing the CO2 content of the air in the building? In our grow room, which is the room within the room, we enrich our plant growth by adding CO2 somewhere between six to 800 parts per million. And what kind of uh, stimulation does that give you? That allows us to grow heavier plants quicker at a higher quality. So it increases the biomass of the plant and it speeds up the growth time because as we all learned in science class, uh, CO2 and light are part of the photosynthesis process and the outcome is oxygen. There's no danger to workers at that level of CO2? We have an alarm in our facility and uh, CO2 becomes an issue at 5,000 ppm, the alarm would go off, and at 10,000 ppm is where you start to get symptoms from CO2. 
So we're well below those levels. Yeah, even back in the age of the dinosaurs, they only had about 2,000 parts per million. So right. we haven't experienced that any time recently. We grow seedlings that can be transplanted into field farms or greenhouses. And then we grow uh, lettuces. We grow baby greens such as kale, arugula, Swiss chard, and then we grow herbs and microgreens. And where are you selling those? I understand that Whole Foods is one of your clients. Uh, Whole Foods was one of our clients. What we have learned is that we put our farm in Portage, Indiana, next to the, near the Whole Foods distribution center. It uh, served approximately 50 stores in eight states, and it was in Munster, Indiana, about 20 minutes away. What we quickly learned was that being 20 minutes away could have been uh, 20 hours away. We still had to go uh, through security. We still had to go through logistics and arrange and schedule trucking. And sometimes our plants could get cross-docked in the wrong coolers. It would impact their perishability. So what we've learned is all future farms, we want to build at or near our customer uh, locations. We're out building farms at grocery store distribution centers, college and corporate campuses, and food processing facilities, wherever large volumes of leafy greens are used on a daily basis. Where are you building these new facilities? Uh, we have a farm uh, that we're working on in the Las Vegas area that is dedicated to a casino, the whole farm. We have a grocer in Michigan that has over 200 stores that we're working with to build a farm. And then we also are working with Ivy Tech Community College in South Bend to build a farm that's not only a working commercial farm, but it's an earn-to-learn training center so that we could train the next wave of sustainable farmers to work both in agriculture and in the food service and produce industry. How long does it take a, a person to learn how to do this? We have many different job categories. An entry-level position would be a farmer, where they learn to how to seed the plants, how to germinate them, how to work in the nursery, how to transplant them to the growth towers, how to harvest, pack, and ship. Uh, those jobs take about somewhere between one to three months to master. And then it gets a little bit more sophisticated where we have growers that learn how to operate all our complex instrumentation and make sure that they are, are the plant whisperer. They can look at the plant and see if it's getting everything it needs, and if not, you know, make adjustments to make sure that the plants grow healthy and strong with the highest quality. Then we also have production managers that uh, schedule seeding and harvesting and make sure that the packing matches the customer orders and can manage the labor pool. Then we have uh, counting and back office support. Then we have marketing and sales. We have senior management that does project development. So they design and build and turn on the farms. And then lastly, we have R&D, where we're constantly looking at, at improvements to the systems and improvements to growing different and new cultivars. So depending on where you look, the, the higher level functions can take years of training to master, and the entry-level ones are just a few months. Sounds terrific, especially managing all the, the computer stuff uh, and, and knowing how much nutrient to add is pretty sophisticated, I assume. Yes, we use a Fertigator, which is a, a computer-controlled mechanical device 
that mixes our nutrient mix and combines with our irrigation uh, water to uh, deliver uh, cycles of irrigation to the plants. And so that's all computer controlled, but understanding how to mix up our stock tanks uh, to get them to the right concentrations with the right nutrient mix and to program the fertigator is definitely a skill. I'm curious about yearly production. Typically, we have built a modular farm that's scalable, and that modular farm is 20,000 square feet in a footprint. That allows us to go from seed to supermarket. So that's the seeding, the germination area, the nursery, the grow towers, the packing, the shipping, you know, storage, and cleaning. And that module has two climate-controlled grow rooms that allow us to grow a wider variety of crops. If we need extra capacity, then we can add another grow room. So we like to grow in monocrops, so each grow room preferably has a single crop that's the same age. This way, we can give it exactly what it needs. As you start to get more crops in one room, it gets harder and harder to create perfect conditions. You have to compromise. So, for example, in our lettuce room, which is roughly 4,000 square feet, we're able to produce somewhere between 15 to 20,000 heads per week. In our herb room, if we just grew basil plants, we would be able to produce somewhere between 20 to 25,000 basil plants per week, which is quite high output for a very small system. I would say so, indeed. Are there issues with disease? There's two issues that you have to be concerned with when you bring growing indoors. One is pests, and two is disease. On the pest side, we implement an integrated pest management strategy, which starts by limiting access to our farm, and second, by making sure the farm is always clean and sanitary so that our plants aren't in there very long and you always clean up the farm. That's the best way to control your, your bugs. The second way is for disease, we deal with air purification and water purification. We use an advanced uh, system that allows us to filter our return water so that we can recycle it almost 100%. And then we hit it with an ozone, which kills any pathogens, and it breaks down into oxygen so that we're able to achieve very high dissolved oxygen ratios between 25 to 35 parts per million which creates a very aerobic condition, which promotes healthy root growth and staves off disease. Those are our two weapons to keep pests and disease under control. We really see this, the future of farming, but more importantly, we really see you know, the next generation of graduates uh, from college as being the future of farming. You know, there's a whole generation of very smart young people that know how to use technology and that's how we're going to feed a growing population with less inputs, is by harnessing that energy with technology to grow more with less. So thank you very much for your time and allowing you to share our thoughts with your listeners. Uh, thank you very much. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi and East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. 
Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, our land, and our water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, please please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming local events. The U.S. Forest Service is offering a free family-friendly guided hike along the Hemlock Cliffs Trail in Crawford County from 11.30 to 1 p.m. on Friday, January 17th. Walk the 1.5-mile loop to view rock outcroppings, waterfalls, and geological formations. Go to the Hoosier National Forest website at 222.fsu.usda.gov slash Hoosier or call 812-547-7051 for more information. Brown County Winter Hike Series will continue on Saturday, January 18th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Hike to the lake that never was. This is a very rugged two-mile hike. Dress for the weather, wear waterproof boots, and the hike will proceed even if there is snow on the ground. You must register for this hike at the Indiana DNR website. Learn about monarch butterflies at Harmony School, located at 909 East 2nd Street in Bloomington, on Saturday, January 18th from 1 to 3 p.m. Plant your own milkweed in a milk jug greenhouse. Bring an empty jug if you have one, and visit mc-iris on Facebook, or go to https colon slash slash www.facebook.com slash events. Coming up on Martin Luther King Day, Monday, January 20th, you have an opportunity to help assemble mini garden seed kits that will be distributed to schools in the WFHB radio listening area at the IU Hilltop Garden and Nature Center. Two shifts are available from 12.30 p.m. to 3.15 p.m. or 2.45 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. There will be a Bald Eagle driving tour on Sunday, January 26th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Lake Monroe. The tour will include six outdoor shoreline stops using spotting scopes. Advanced registration is required through January 23rd by calling 812-837-9546. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. They are found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Juliana Daly compiled our event.
Advance Calendar. David Lyman wrote the script and Linda Green edited it. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.